Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10, we're going to go through Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. If you remember last time we looked at God's judgment of rebellious man at the Tower of Babel, we saw there an entirely united, peaceful, and productive society, yet one refusing to give glory to God by obeying his command to spread out and fill the earth. No, they said, we're going to build a name for ourselves by doing what we want to do, staying together and making this great earthly temporal project that other generations coming after us will say, look how great they were. Look what they did. It was all about their name and not the name of God. And so all that peace and all that unity and all that prosperity that enabled that sin, God said, had to go. And so God judged them. And God brought division. God brought separation. He divided their languages and brought confusion and misunderstanding and no doubt mistrust. And a lot of other things that have come from that sense then, right? We now have groups and tribes and peoples and, and nations and races even with Uh, different racial characteristics, whether or not you like that word, that's all that refers to, that we have different genetic makeups that we can see certain particular things. But that was from God. That was God's design. He separated the peoples. And he did it for our good. Because we are so bad that unless we are separated and, uh, and unless we are kept apart from one another and chafe against one another we would come back together again as one against God. It happened before the flood. It happened after the flood. God said, no more. I will divide the peoples into nations and they will, as it were, check and balance one another and keep us from uniting against God. God did it for our good. There are nations for our good. There are divisions for our good. There's strife for our good. Nationalism was God's idea. Globalism is Satan's idea. There was globalism at the tower, and it was rebellion against God. We need to be in separate nations. That's God's will until Christ's return, as far as we can tell. But that doesn't stop us from being one in Christ. And we saw the great unbabble was not man in his efforts trying to overcome his divisions and making some kind of one nation in the natural temple. No, it was the Holy Spirit poured out and people, the first Christians speaking in other tongues and no confusion, all understanding. It was overcome by the gospel, not by man's social efforts. That's what made one. And we had that one in the church. Right now, we have that unity. We have it by faith. We'll have it by sight someday. Jesus will come again. There will be one nation physically, uh, uh, really, in this world, in the new heavens and the new earth. But right now, we have it by faith, right? If you've ever gone to another country and worshiped with Christians, you feel that brotherhood immediately. All divisions overcome. All uh, differences overcome by our faith in Christ. And that was shown immediately in the pouring out of tongues. And so this morning, beloved, we're going to look a little bit more at this idea of man seeking a name for himself. Because I think as we close really this opening section of Scripture, the Genesis 1 to 11, very unique portion of Scripture, very important, very foundational, gives us all sorts of information that we need to know who we are and who God is. And that information isn't particularly found in names, right? 
God reveals, we saw it in our call to worship, God's name. What does it mean, God's name? It just doesn't just mean the title, the designation of who he is. In biblical terms, a name is who you are. It's your reputation. It's your fame or perhaps infamy, right? The, the reputation, the name. What does it mean to call upon God's name? To worship him in spirit and truth. What does it mean when we seek our own name? That's what we're going to notice in this text. As we list and we read this list of names one more time. This is the final one. The list of names. We don't know most of these people, right? But they are important and their names signified their lives. And some of their names even signified what they did or what happened in their days. Peleg, when God divided the the world and so forth. And so I want you to just, again, give your attention to this list of names, and we're going to draw some conclusions from it, and we're going to get into Genesis 12, where God makes another promise with regard to a name. And so hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 11. This is God's holy word. Now the whole, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxod two years after the flood. And after he begot Arphaxod, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxod lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxod lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sirug. After he begot Sirug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sirug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sirug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years. And he begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years, and he begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father, Terah, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram, and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make 
you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts, I pray this morning. Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the legacy of man. I want you to notice the legacy of man. We've just read again from this list of names, and I've mentioned to you that this first section of Scripture is uh, very unique. These first 11 chapters where it speaks of God and his creation and man, man as a whole, as it were, all of mankind we've been reading about for the first 11 chapters. We've not really got a focus on one particular group of people. In fact, there really hasn't been such a thing as a group of people because man has always been all together. We did see two lines develop right away. The line of Cain, and we had Cain's genealogy, and the line of Seth, and we had Seth's genealogy. And we saw that was prophesied in the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And although there's an ultimate seed of the woman, Christ, and that was the gospel in seed form that was given in the garden, yet there's a line, right? There's a people that are in that seed. We know how that works in the New Testament. We're in Christ by faith. But we saw that line of faith, that line of people who trusted in God's word and lived for God. We saw that it was in Seth's line that men began to call upon the name of the Lord, right? And we saw that meant worship. That didn't mean prayer. They already prayed. But they began to have really public worship. Cain and Abel brought offerings to God because God had taught them when he killed those animals to clothe Adam and Eve that they needed the the blood of animals in order to appear before him without shame and guilt. And so they knew how to worship God and they did worship God. We know Enoch was a preacher of righteousness and he was so righteous that God took him to heaven. Not that he was righteous by his works, but that he was righteous by faith. That's the only way any sinner is ever righteous. But he was a very godly believer in God. And as an example, as an encouragement to all of the line of Seth, God took him to heaven so that they would know, yes, there is eternal life. Yes, there is life after death. And that occurred in the seventh from Adam, the culmination as it were. And then we saw the seventh from Cain, the seventh from Adam through Cain. The culmination was Lamech, right? Lamech who takes two wives And he kills a man for striking him. And Lamech was interested in his name, right? He wanted to be this this braggart, this man who was considered to be bold and brave and nobody messes with him. You know, it kind of reminds me in the... uh, 70s, we would watch these like crime shows as I was a little kid, right? And you would hear this kind of talk. They called it like this jive talk. An airplane made it, you know, hilariously made fun of that whole kind of talk that they would do in the movies, right? But you'd hear someone talk about his rep, right? This is my rep, and I got a bad rep, or I got a good rep, or whatever. And it just meant his reputation, right? And that's very important to us. I want you to think about that. There's a sense in which it may be that nothing is more important to any person than their rep, their reputation, their name. Your name is who you are. Your name is how people know you. You want to have a good name. Everybody wants to have a good name, right? You want to have a good name, whether it's, you know, you want to be a good 
wide receiver. You want to be known as somebody who catches the ball. He never drops the ball. He never misses a pass. And you're proud of that name because you worked hard to get it and you've achieved it through many examples. And people know, the quarterback knows if he throws it to you, you're not going to drop it because you have good hands, right? Because you got that name for having good hands. And you can have a name like that for all kinds of things. He's a good student or, or uh, he's really a hard worker. And we can get a bad name too sometimes, right? Well, you better not talk to so-and-so. You know how he is. He's got this bad temper. You know, oh, he can't handle trouble. As soon as there's a little bit of stress, he's going to lash out at somebody. Or, well, you know her. She's a gossip. You better not say anything around her. And we get a bad name, right? Or we get a good name. But a name is really important to us. How people perceive us, who we are. It's one of the most important things in our lives. And the Bible teaches us who God is. And the Bible teaches us who man is. And we saw man made in God's image. Uh, Sinless, perfect. Both Adam was perfect and Eve was perfect. And they both had a perfect nature until they fell. And then they had a sinful nature. And then they had sinful thoughts and sinful desires and so forth. And then they made sinful choices. Don't ever think, and I know there's some of these pseudo-reformed authors out there that kind of say, well, you know, Adam maybe fell because Eve left her place and started talking to the serpent. And and, and they make her a sinner before she eats from the tree. Which means God is the one who sinned. God made her imperfect because she starts rebelling as soon as she starts talking. That's... Heresy, in my opinion. Adam and both, both Adam and Eve were perfect. Eve never had a sinful thought. She never did a sinful thing until she ate from the tree. Then she fell. Stay reformed, congregation. Be reformed. In reformed theology, we read in the Westminster Confession, the sin of our first parents was, wasn't Eve leaving her place. It was eating the forbidden fruit. Remember, I had that whole sermon. Eating the forbidden fruit. Well, of course it was. And yet we have these guys who say, no, it wasn't. It was something else. And then Adam would have been right. It was the woman you gave me. She wasn't submissive enough. That's bogus. That's garbage. Eve was perfect until she sinned. And really, I don't even think she got a sinful nature till Adam sinned. Because Adam was the first head of the race. When Adam sinned, all mankind fell. And that's when she got her sinful nature. And Adam got his sinful nature. And then we see what? Them trying to cover themselves and blaming each other because they they don't want that to be attached to their name. It's about their name again. But when God comes and announces the gospel, we see Adam naming his wife Chava. In Hebrew, life. He gives her a name based on his faith in God's word. He names her for that. And so much of the Bible was about names. The very first thing sinless Adam did was to begin to name the animals, right? To put a name upon them, again, that showed forth their character and their creatureliness in accordance with the way God made them, using his wisdom. Adam, again, was doing this perfectly without sin. But now, even as a fallen creature, he names his wife with such grace one of the most beautiful moments i think in scripture when sinful fallen adam who's now mortal calls sinful fallen eve who's now mortal not death he doesn't say look what you did to us how could you give me that apple or orange or mango or whatever it was he doesn't say that 
He doesn't remember her sins. He doesn't dig up what she did. He calls her life. Because God's promise said that it was the seed of the woman that would save mankind. And so in faith in that promise, Adam names Eve life. That's what a godly man does. He loves his wife and he builds her up. He calls her life. The name. How important it is that we have that good name. There's nothing wrong with wanting a good name. We should want to have a good name. The Westminster Confession in about half a dozen places says it's our duty to protect our own name and the name of our neighbor. It's our duty to protect the good name, it says. Our own good name and the good name of our neighbor. And we saw that in, or in um, Noah's sons, right? We saw how when Noah sinned, and it was a sin, don't pass it off. Well, Noah didn't know that grapes ferment. No, I think he did. And I think they had all kind of drunkenness before the flood. Noah knew what happened. He got drunk. He sinned. And yet his two sons, remember Japheth and Shem walking backwards with that blanket covering him. They wouldn't even look upon his shame because they wanted to protect their father's name. They didn't want their father to get the name of a drunk, even when there's only eight people in the world. Actually, it would have been multiple years because Canaan was born. We saw that, but maybe five or so years. It would have been several, uh, maybe even dozen people in the world at that time. But they didn't want that. They didn't want, they protected their father's name. And I said to you how important it is in the church that we do that, that we cover one another's sins, that we don't expose them, that we don't shout out how sinful so-and-so is or what so-and-so did 15 years ago. We should be covering sin. We should be bearing it up. Because we want to protect one another's good name because a good name is important. Now, I'm, that's not the same thing. Co- protecting and covering sin is not the same thing as sweeping sin that needs to be dealt with under the rug. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about crimes and sin. Sometimes in the church, unfortunately, you know, sins get swept under the rug if you're, you know, a leader or if, you know, you're important enough. You get special treatment. We never want that. If we have sin that needs to be addressed, we need to address it, right? What did Zacchaeus tell Jesus? If I've stolen from anybody, I'll give them fourfold back. He didn't say, well, you know, can't say that, got to cover. That's not covering sin. Covering sin is when we cover our personal shame that doesn't need to be dealt with with someone else. But we don't need to shame somebody else for any reason. We should be covering that. And, and, And Shem and Japheth do that. And so this idea of a good name that we should want That we do want, by nature we want that name, right? Cain was so worried that people would kill him because of the mark. He was worried about his reputation. Whoever finds me will kill me, right? So God, actually that's when God puts the mark on him so that no one would kill him. He would be known as a murderer. But God protects him because he knew his name was mud, as it were. And so he names his first city after his son. He can't name it after himself. But he's still interested in his name. He passes on the name of his son. And we saw a man in his sinfulness wanting to celebrate his own name. And that's part of what caused the flood. If you would look back in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4, you would see that. Where part of the reason for the flood was that man became extremely wicked. And remember it says there the Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And we saw that was the mixed marriages. That was a sin. They were not supposed to do that. The line of Seth, the line of faith, should not marry unbelievers. That's always been the case. That was what leads Israel into captivity later. And when they come out of captivity, uh, um, 
Ezra is, is so incensed that they're doing it again. They're marrying unbelievers. And the New Testament, Paul says, you can't marry an unbeliever. But that's what they started to do here right away before the flood. The sons of God, the, the believers were marrying the daughters of men, mere men. And what came from that was what the mighty men, men who were mighty. And it, it, notice it says men of renown. Remember, it was men of the name. Men who were mighty and making a name for themselves. Could you imagine if you could live five or six, seven, eight hundred years and be an El Capone? I mean, what could El Capone have done in six or seven or eight hundred? Or a Pol Pot? I mean, you could imagine the name that these wicked men would have gotten for themselves living so long. I think part of God's mercy after the flood was shortening man's lifespan. So that that immense wickedness where they made this name for themselves. And that's what they were interested in. Making a name for themselves. Even though we saw that godly line in God's plan still naming things according to their faith in God. Adam naming Eve. Eve naming Seth when she says Seth because sheath in Hebrew means to to receive or or to, to put or to place or to appoint. And God appointed for her another seed. So, so she's believing God when she names her, her child. And then when Noah's born, his father Lamech calls him Noah, which means rest. They're still believing God and they're naming one another. They're trying to, as it were, have their reputation and submission to God. They want to exalt God's name, God's word. So they even name themselves after their faith in God's name, God's word. And that's what the godly line continues to do. But what happens as soon as they begin to multiply after the flood... Rather than obey God and glorify his name by going out and filling the earth, something God had said to do, and he blessed them for it, they try to make a name for themselves. That's what we saw last week. That's what the Tower of the Babel, Babel was about. They said, come, let us build ourselves a, t- a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Here it is. Let us make a name for ourselves. And they were doing it by doing what God had said not to do. Or by not, really, by not doing what God had said to do. God said, spread out, fill the earth. No, let's stay together and do what we want. We'll make a name for ourselves. That was the sin of man. This is the legacy of man over and over again. Do you see it? A name for himself. Even when the first temptation of Satan, you'll be like God. Oh, I want that name. All I have to do is eat from the tree. Okay, I'll do that. Constantly wanting to make a name for himself over and over again, his way against the word of God. And so secondly, I want you to notice the faithfulness of God. If the legacy of man is trying to have this sinful name, the faithfulness of God is being true to his good name. You know, throughout these 11 chapters, we've seen God's goodness. We've seen God's goodness in making man in his image and likeness. And putting him in a garden and giving him the herb of the ground. And then the trees of the garden, the fruit of the trees to eat all the trees but one, which was just a test. And giving man, his woman, his wife, and the two of them being able to come together in love for one another. In perfect, sinless righteousness. Living for God in the perfect garden. All their needs met. Needing nothing. The goodness of God. And God's goodness in the ant, making the animals. And God's goodness in making uh, all of the realms of, of this world. Right? And we saw that. And God said, it is good. It is good. Every time it is good. And then at the end, what does he say? Behold, it is very good. Because our God is very good. And that's really the essence of our God's name. That our God 
is good. We used to sing this song at uh, New Life uh, in Harrison City. God is good all the time. You can take that the wrong way, right? But it's true. In everything, our God is good. When God appointed the fall, and he surely appointed it, it was for our good, for the good of his elect children whom he chose from before the foundation of the world. It is better, in other words, that we be fallen and redeemed in Christ and have the heavenly rewards that we have in Christ than if we would have lived in Adam and had the earthly rewards that were promised to Adam. Ultimately, even that was for our good. God is good. God is in control. He made all things. We saw that in those creation chapters. Not a single molecule that God didn't make. And man in his sinfulness can't do anything that God won't let him do, right? Jesus said this. Not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from your father's will. I know I told you, boy, I wish I wouldn't have done it. It bothers me to this day. Me and my buddies would sit in the yard once in a while with our BB guns trying to shoot those sparrows for no reason other than the pleasure of killing something. And it kind of comforts me to, to, to think of that scripture, though, now, that even that God permitted, right? Because I wouldn't have been able to hit one of those sparrows if it was not in some way God's permissive will for me to do something that was wrong. And yet God is in control, right? He even uses our sins to bring him to faith in Christ. And you know my testimony, how I lived as a drunkard and a partier. And if it wasn't for the accident that killed my friend and I had to go to jail for it, I wouldn't have been a Christian. That's what God used to change me. I could question it and say, why well, couldn't he have done something else? It doesn't matter. That's what he used. And that wouldn't have been enough either if he wouldn't have moved by his grace through the gospel that I had heard but knew I was resisting In order to save me. And so God is showing his good name right throughout. Isn't that what we see throughout? God calling Adam to name creation. And then man calling upon the name of the Lord. Because his name is good. His name is salvation. And that's what we saw in throughout these early chapters. That even when man sins and he deserves to die and go to hell. God does not. God causes the ground to be cursed. And that makes it harder for man. But man needs it harder now. And then God promises salvation, the seed of the woman. will one day crush the head of the serpent. And faith in that promise is what kept Adam and Eve going. And again, they name their children in faith in that promise. And they teach their children to worship in faith in that promise as they bring those offerings. And then after the flood, how God continues to show good to man. Even though man should have been destroyed in the flood, God's grace found Noah. And God saved man from his wrath By visiting man again with his unmerited favor, his grace, his goodness. And God, after the flood, institutes new rules for mankind to help man. God said, if anybody kills a man, by man his blood shall be shed. God instituted capital punishment for all peoples. Because human life is that valuable that a murderer must lose his life. We do the opposite in our country. We let murderers go and we kill the innocent in the womb. But God's justice is the opposite of that. We, we should put murderers to death. If we really valued life, we would. And if we really valued life, we would never harm an innocent child in the womb. But God knew all those things and still he gives man these extra laws. He puts the fear of man on the animals. He blesses man. He gives him now the animals for food. That wasn't the case before the flood. Now God says everything that moves. There's no ceremonial law there. 
It doesn't come till later, and that's again to show forth Christ. But at this point in time, everything that moves, he gives it all to man. All creation, man can now eat. God is good. He gives sinful, fallen man everything. For his food, he tells him again to spread out. He puts the rainbow in the sky so man would know God won't judge us again, though we deserve it. God's goodness, beloved, is seen throughout How God shows the goodness of his name, his faithfulness, that we would continue to trust in him and walk in his promises and in his goodness. And of course, we saw man develop all sorts of things, right? Horticulture, gardening, farming, ranching, metallurgy, construction, music, building cities. It's all in Genesis 1 to 11. Nations peoples spreading out different racial characteristics because they go with this much DNA and they go with that. But we're all one. We're all brothers. That's clear in scripture. In evolution, no, this race might be more evolved, might might be less human over here. Only scripture says man is from one blood. That's what Paul preached in the New Testament. This is God's faithfulness. And thirdly, I want you to notice the beginning of the old covenant. I want you to notice the beginning of the Old Covenant. If you're unfamiliar with this terminology, your Bible, right, is divided into two testaments. The New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, And the word testament is just another English translation of the biblical word covenant. So you could speak of the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant does not refer to the covenant of works which man broke in Adam. That's, when we say the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, or when you hear Paul talking about under the law, he doesn't mean that. He's talking about the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace. All right? That once Adam and Eve fell, there's only one covenant that man can relate to God through. You can't be saved by your works. Adam could. Adam was supposed to, actually. But now we can only be saved by grace. Grace in the promised salvation that God said would come through the seed of the woman. And in our text, the seed of Abraham. It was the seed of the woman. And then God said he was the God of Shem, which indicated that Shem was going to be the line. And from Shem, as we saw in our genealogy, comes, by the way, Eber. I haven't commented on Eber. But Eber is where we get the word Hebrew from. Eber, Hebrew. He was the last one to live over 400 years. You see the decreasing ages in this genealogy, don't you? Contrast this genealogy with the genealogy in Genesis 5, before the flood. And Genesis 5, they're all living 900 years or so. There's no decline. There's no incline. There's a few, you know, Lamech dies at, Lamech dies at 777. Probably something happened to him, right? Because nobody died that young back then. They all lived into their 900s. That was normal old age. And it's very early before things like uh, uh, genetic disorders would have developed or anything. That that really would have been unheard of in that very, very uh, beginning of man's uh, DNA and gene pool. And so they lived all into their 900s. But in this text, beloved, do you see the very first son of Noah, Shem, not his firstborn, but the the son, the line that we're, we're tracing it that comes through Shem, he only lived 600 years. Now, Shem lived 100 years before the flood. So all of that, that whatever it was in the environment, whatever it might have been in the food, the perfect soil before the flood, the perfect environment, stronger magnetic field, there's many ideas of what it could have been, maybe even just perhaps the will of God. But whatever it was that kept man alive longer, 
After the flood, it's no more. And I think our text in this genealogy really shows that there was a natural component to man's longevity before the flood. Otherwise, you wouldn't see the continual decreasing, right? That every generation that had less exposure to that world before the flood, they live a shorter amount of time. Shem lived 100 years then, so he lived 600. But his son, who didn't live at all before the flood, but still had all of the the genetic benefits of a father and mother who lived 100 years before the flood, he lives into his 400s. But then it starts to go down from there too, doesn't it? The couple of generations in the 400s and then 200s. In about 15 generations, we get to Joseph who lives to be 110. And we're back to, we're basically to where we are today. And it all happens over the course of about 15, 15 generations is a long time. But you also see something else in the two genealogies. In the genealogy of Genesis 5, no one has a child before the age of 65. And we saw there that if, if, if man's aging process was slowed, that would mean his maturing process would be slowed. And so maybe puberty was around 50 or 55, which would explain why no one had children until they were 65. In our genealogy, everybody's in their 30s. And one person's 29 when he has a child. So the aging process has increased and the maturing process has increased. And of course, that's uh, uh, very, very understandable and reasonable. There are diseases right now, and I mentioned this, I think, back when we did Genesis 5, that human beings can contract and one in so many thousands of of human births do where, where children get this very serious aging disease. And by age four or five, they die of heart failure. And you've seen it. You've probably seen those, inform- you know, those times where they show these kids. And for whatever reason, their aging process is rapidly increased. Well, if it can rapidly increase, there ought to be something that could have slowed it down. And I think part of it was the environment and the food and everything else that would have been, again, before the flood, before everything's all churned up, would have been pristine. And so man lived longer, but now man lives less long. And that's part of the reason for this genealogy to show us why things are the way they are. Why do we live in nations that are separate? Oh, because of the Tower of Babel. Why are there separate languages? Because of the Tower of Babel. Why do we live not as long as they did? Oh, well, we see the, the age is decreasing here. It must have been because after the flood, the world is different. And that man doesn't get to live as long. Calvin says one of the reasons God gives us this second genealogy after Genesis 5, he means, is so that we, quote, might not be ignorant of the age of the world. For unless this brief description had been preserved, men at this day would not have known how much time intervened between the deluge and the day in which God made his covenant with Abraham. Calvin believed this is historical, factual information. Okay? Because he says this is how we know the age of the world. Because we can count up the ages. Now, there may be possible gaps if you were really paying attention. When I read Luke, and I picked Luke on purpose for this reason, Luke adds a name. Luke doesn't do it on his own. There's manuscript authority for it. The Septuagint adds a name between Arphaxod and Salah, and it's Canaan. Also, the Samaritan Pentateuch, and also there's a Jewish tradition of manuscripts because Philo, who would not have quoted these these other sources, he adds that same name, Canaan. So we're not sure. Should Canaan be in there or not? Because the text can just mean that when it says that he was this year old when he begot Salah, it could just mean, well, it's actually uh, his lesser known father were skipping. And so we're just saying, and, and both of them were 30 years old, both Canaan and Salah were 30. So it works. And they, they're allowed to do that with genealogies. They often would just summarize. You know, Adam, uh, Abraham at one point is called the son of, of God. 
the, the son of Adam, the son of God. David is called the son of Abraham. Obviously, there's a lot of skip generations there. So they're allowed to skip in the genealogy. Maybe they did. Maybe there's some gaps, right? Luke seems to support the idea that at least one name uh, is really there that wasn't there. Now, there's some manuscript differences in Luke. So maybe we go by the Masoretic text. We, we don't know for sure the answer to the question. There's an answer, right? And it comes down to a manuscript difference. It doesn't affect our, our understanding of inerrancy. But the point of the matter is, even if there's a couple of gaps here and there, we're talking at most a few hundred years. You can't put tens of thousands or millions of years in this genealogy by a couple of names left out. We're talking a very, very short amount of time here and there. Uh, But what I want you to notice is that this is, this genealogy shows us the faithfulness of God. Why are we getting this line? Because God said in chapter 9, he was the God of Shem. And now we get the line of Shem all the way to Abram. By the way, from Adam to Noah, ten generations. From Shem to Abram. Ten generations. And so there is this uh, Hebrew way of organizing the generations here that we would understand. They picked these, for them, uh, more well-known names. Some of the names we actually do know extra-biblically. The last three names, Sarug, Nahor, and Terah, are names in the cuneiform of areas, cities in this region. And probably named for these men because they did name cities after men. And we notice that Haran dies in Haran. Gee, I wonder how Haran got the name Haran. That's where Haran died, so that's what we call it now. And so thir- uh, as we, uh, we've been looking here at the beginning of the Old Covenant, again, this is the, the place where, in a sense, God does something new. He's going to pick now one nation to focus on. Never again in Scripture, really, till the book of Revelation, do we look at all of mankind. First 11 chapters, all of mankind, you know, with the understanding of two lines, believers, unbelievers, but all of mankind. From now on, once God picks Abraham, we're going to focus on on the nation of Israel because it was through them that God would bring the promised scene. So on the one hand, something new, but on the other hand, something not new. Why does God choose Abraham? Because he said he would bring the sea, salvation through the seed of the woman. And Abraham is in fulfillment of that promise. The promise to Abraham builds on the promise to Eve. Just as the promise to Israel under Moses builds on the promise of Abraham, which builds on the promise to Eve. This is one salvation and ultimately one people. And so I want you to notice the grace of salvation. Fourthly and lastly, the grace of salvation. It was not Abraham that made God's choice. It was not the goodness of Abraham that made God's choice of him. It was God's choice that made Abraham. It was God's choice that made the goodness of Abraham. I know I've heard ministers, and unfortunately you'll hear this sometimes, but, well, you know, before God chose Abraham, he might have offered the covenant to half a dozen people. And they didn't say yes, you know, as if God needed Abraham's part. Abraham, by the way, would have said no. Abraham would have been just like everyone else, dead in sin if God had not regenerated. Can I show that from scripture? Yeah, I think I can. In Joshua chapter 24, when the people were about to enter the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joshua says this, if it seems good, evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Listen, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river... 
or the gods of the Amorites in the land whose, whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now that's Genesis chapter, or sorry, Joshua 24, 15. And that builds on Joshua 24, 2, where Joshua said this. Lest we say, well, the fathers, that probably wasn't Abraham's immediate family. Genesis, or Joshua 24, 2. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, listen to this, dwelt on the other side of the river in olden times and they served other gods. Terah, Abraham's father, served other gods. Why does God say to Abram, get out of your house? Get out of, yes, your father's house. Leave your land. Because his father's house, unfortunately, the line of Shem, the line that God was preserving to bring the seed of the woman that he promised all the way back in the garden, the line of Shem is now worshiping the moon. That's who they worshiped in in Ur of the Chaldees and in Haran. We know they worshiped the moon. Abraham's family were moon worshipers. Now, they probably still worship Jehovah too. You know, they're they're just kind of adding a little bit of worldliness. Hey, the world will like us more if we add a little bit of this. They're all saying, everyone else is doing it. Look how cool the moon is. Who knows? Maybe Abraham was beginning to worship the moon. But God's choice rescued him from that. God pulled him out. This is the grace of God. Abraham has no ability in himself to bring salvation. Abraham has nothing to bring to the table. The text says his wife was barren. This is about the seed promise. This is about the line. Father, father, father. Why? Because God's going to bring the line through the, or the seed through this line. We're getting this one line now to focus down to this one man and his wife can't have children. There's no ability in Abraham. His parents are worshiping the moon. His wife is barren and God says to him, get out from your house. Get out of your country. From your family, yes, from your father's house. Yes, specific he gets. To a land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, etc. Seven passive promises. Seven promises where Abram's passive. I'm, I'm going to show you that. I know there's some people that argue that one of them's active. And that's the social gospel guys uh, that always turns into works righteousness. But it's not true. They're all passive. The only thing Abraham is called to do is get out of your father's house. The one thing that would have been hard for him would have been really difficult. Have you ever thought of that? He has to leave everyone and go somewhere where he doesn't know anybody. He doesn't even know where the land is yet. I'll show you the land on the way. Just go. God tells him to go. And Abram believes God and goes. He believes God and he goes. Abram is not seeking to make a name for himself. If he was doing that, he would have stayed in Haran. You know, when this idea of making a name for ourselves, that we do, and it's good, and we should. We, we should want a good name, but we should want a good name for just reasons, right? I shouldn't want the name of a, a big giver in the church if I'm a small giver, but I just try to look like I'm a big giver, you know? And that's the problem with, with this all-important thing of our reputation among men. It's so important to us, and it should be in a sense, And so what we do is we end up lying. We end up exaggerating certain things or leaving out other things so that people think differently about us because our name becomes more important than the truth. 
And that can't happen, brothers and sisters. We can't want a name that we haven't earned. We can't want to give anyone else a name that they haven't earned. I see this. uh, In fact, in, in my opinion, probably the command that we break most in our culture today. You might think I'm going to say thou shalt not commit adultery because of all the sexual sin. I don't think it's that one. I think it's thou shalt not bear false witness. Because that's what we constantly do. The whole media is constantly one giant enterprise in a collusion of bearing false witness. Puffing up the candidates and people and party that they like with false witness. And tearing down and and rejecting and condemning the ones they don't like. And it's all about falsehood. It's all about leaving out certain facts, exaggerating other facts, making things at a certain time... uh, protecting the ones it's 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 just one enterprise in false witnessing and we do it on social media right we jump on the uh, virtue signaling bandwagon i want people to see how good i am oh this story just happened i better hurry up and show everybody that i agree with it and you get this name of oh he's a good person because he just said that you know that's a bad thing that happened there or that's a good thing and you don't know anything about the story all you know is everybody that's you know cool is saying you should take this side And so you do it because you want that name. And you don't know. You don't know the details. I worked in the news for five years. We spend about 15 minutes on a story. We look at what the AP wire comes down that we get. The reporters rewrite it. And they, in their own words, they go on the TV and they say it. I make some graphics for it and it goes away. Nobody cares about the truth. The Israeli-Arab conflict in in two minutes. Something that's gone on for 2,000 years. You can understand it and pick sides. So many things like that. But we virtue signal or we cancel, right? We'll bear false witness against somebody. We'll find someone, something that we can distort and say, you know, Martin Luther said or did this. Oh, he was a horrible person. There wouldn't be a person in this room today if it wasn't for Martin Luther. Not one. He had more virtue in his little finger than we have in our collective lives. And this kind of nonsense that goes out there. Digging up some one wrong thing that somebody did. I wonder if if people did that to you or me. There's a lot of bad things I've done and said. I guess I should be canceled, right? Why don't we go around and say that about, find the saints, find all the horrible things they did. That's not what Japheth and Shem did. They protected the name, right? We want that name. We feel that pressure of society. I want to tell you a story as I'm getting ready to close. I was um, going to bring this up earlier, but... You know, we want, even, even little kids understand this. I remember I had to be in second or third grade and we were doing some kind of a game or something in recess. I don't know what it was. All I remember is by the end of the day, everybody was making fun of me because I wouldn't kiss the girl who was sitting behind me at her desk as we're waiting for our buses to be called. And I'm really mad about it because everybody's calling me scaredy cat and you know frady or chicken or whatever and I don't know why I was supposed to kiss her but I knew one thing I mean and this is the thing that bothered me all the people making fun of me why didn't they realize as all good little boys realize that kissing little girls is how you get cooties (laughs) and all good little girls know that that's how they get it too they don't want to kiss little boys and yet even the girl herself began teasing me and so Again, in second grade, my bus is ready to be called and I'm incensed. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't want to be known as scaredy cat from now on. So they, they call the bus number 98. I still, I remember this so graphically because it was tense. My whole reputation's at stake. I'm seven years old. 
And as soon as they called the bus, I, don't, I didn't plan it. I just leaned over the back of the desk. I kissed her right on the nose and ran out to the bus. And I sure remember the look on her face was like this. And I saved my reputation. I don't even remember anything after. I don't remember the fallout. It must have went away. But I remember that traumatic moment where we want, again, to do something to make a name for ourselves, even, even if it's a good thing. Now, you can argue that that's our society. Wow, they, that doesn't say anything bad about that society. They all were together. They all had one. They were being very generous in the way we were speaking to one another, working together. But they were doing what God had said not to do. They weren't listening to him. We can't make a name for ourselves that way, beloved. That's what the whole world is doing. The whole world, even if it's a good thing in their work or, or in their charity or whatever. But if they don't do it in submission to God, it's rebellion against him. And you know what the big lie is? The big lie is that you can do it. That you can make this name for yourselves. Right? I've even seen it in kids' cartoons. The, the, the one dinosaur cartoon. Well, all we can hope for is that someday they'll remember us. You know, Remember our name. And want to have this name. Everybody wants this name. And again, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to want a good name. We were made in the image and likeness of God. We bear his name. We're supposed to bear his name. But what I want you to see is that man throughout these 11 chapters trying to make a name for himself. Before the, uh, the uh, flood. After the flood. What does God say that he will do to Abram? Right in the middle of the seven blessings. The middle blessing. I will make your name great. See, that's the big lie. You think that you have to do it yourself by not listening to God, by doing what you want to do. And the way to have a great name is to obey God. When you listen to him, when you believe in him, when you follow him, that's when he makes your name great. The great lie of the world is God's all about himself and he makes people to worship him and he's punishing us. And he, you know, and we try to give God a bad name. We blame him for sin, you know. You talk to an unbeliever. How long is it before you see they, they're blaming God for the things in their life? God has never done anything but good to them. And if they would just submit to him, he would give them what, they, what they're trying to find, which they'll never find. He would give them a great name. That is the truth of Scripture. God promises to give them a great name. And then at the end of the blessing, look, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God hasn't forgotten the other lines. He hasn't forgotten the children of Ham who went mostly into Africa. Only the Canaanites were cursed, by the way, and they weren't black. He hasn't forgotten the descendants of Japheth that went mostly into Europe. They were promised, to be, they were promised blessing someday. It's not going to come for 2,000 years. He didn't forget the other descendants of Shem who went into China and beyond. He didn't forget them. Because in Abram, God's going to bring that salvation that was promised in the garden to mankind. In you, Abram. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we see your goodness. We can see it in your great name and how you have done things worthy of praise and honor and adoration. You've only ever done us good. Even when you brought judgment, you brought it with mercy. Even when you brought destruction to the wicked, you spared and continued your promise. And Father, we admit all of us should be condemned and cursed by you. We should be swept away in another flood. We should be scattered in another tower of Babel. But you have united us by the righteousness of your son, by faith in his name. And his name is glorious to the ends of the earth. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.